Um, what One of these times in our lives for all of us in the summer when there's more time to enjoy the sunshine. So I hope you are sunshine and fresh air. And we're blessed by the oxygen that we get spiritually from encouragement. And I don't know anybody today that doesn't need encouragement. So for about a couple of minutes, let's encourage the saints. Would you reach out? And as our kids get ready to go to their classes, we want to welcome each of you for just a, a good time of mutual encouragement. Just reach out one to another for a few moments. And our kids can go ahead and follow teachers to Pathfinders and Explorers. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Welcome to all of you. Good. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's good. As we're coming back, I also just want to I want to say just a big thank you again for the acts of kindness that are so much a part of what I think of the, <laughs> I think of the fragrance of life. I think of that, um, the scripture in 2 Corinthians 2.14 says that the saints following Jesus, that there's a fragrance of Jesus that we carry with us wherever we go. Clearly, that directs us right to what we'll be looking at today, that our life is hidden with Christ and God, your identity is in Christ. And we want to take a moment and just thank each of you who serve in the life of this congregation in the things that maybe are not always seen. And, and it happens so frequently that um, uh, it, it means more to me than I can express. I want to say thanks to those serving in the Cafe Liberty again today, and especially thanks to Karen Kodak for stepping in today for Second Sunday and uh, Roberto on, on media service. Thanks so much to David and Diane Berry for just offering extra time to come do some extra cleaning and in the process find three bees nests and, and eliminate them. You know, it may sound like a small thing to some people, but those, those steps of grace, those kind acts of kindness that each of you take just to love your church and Nikki Florentine and the beautiful way that she gives an eye to this table and uh, just the themes of the year. Um, there are so many ways that our expressions of the love of Christ enrich relationships. Well, I want you to turn, if you're in your Bible, please, to the third chapter of Colossians. And uh, for a moment, get it in that pew Bible there, because we'll read a section of this aloud together and love to be able to do that in the same translation, uh, the New King James translation. And then we'll be looking at how this... Uh, snapshot, our fifth snapshot in the epistle to the Colossians, takes us into what is known as the practical half 
the practical section of the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. And as we look at this, we see various topics included in 17 verses, and yet there's a unifying theme that is quite striking, and particularly in the environment that we live in today, where it is an instinctive and even impulsive, and I should say obsessive, part of American culture to try to find one's identity in something that gives the person a sense of a niche, a sense of uniqueness. Now, in and of itself, we could all understand that's a human feeling, it's a human experience. In and of itself, not necessarily a problem. As a follower of Jesus, if we submit our desires to the Lord every day, if we do what Psalm 37, 3 and 4 says, commit your way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass, delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, then we can see there are valuable ways that all of us find uh, distinctives in life. But I'm not talking about those distinctives today. I'm talking as a contrast to uh, about partly the obsession in our culture to find an identity that ends up being a demand that we make on others. Now, you see it, don't you? It's breaking loose everywhere. You've got to identify me like I want to be identified. So the pronoun war that we're seeing today, which is, is such, such an absurd misuse of language, and yet it's become not just a fad, far more than a fad or a craze, it's actually becoming embedded and required in corporate and educational environments that people declare their pronouns. So this is a one, that's one of many, many flashpoints that we might think of in our culture where an obsession with identifying oneself in a particular way. Oh, we know it can run the gamut from uh, being overly obsessed with wearing my favorite football team's uh, jersey and, and identifying with that, that's a human understand, understanding, but when it, goes into, when it goes into the realm where we begin finding our identity in something other than Christ, we are, we are really on the verge of not only losing touch with the blessings of God, but actually, in many cases, we are on the verge of distorting the very meaning of life's best relationships. So in light of that, we might think of verse 1 to 17 here of Colossians 3 as many topics touched on. In fact, we'll see there are 11 negatives and 11 positives that are included in the instructions of the Apostle Paul. 11 things to warn against, both for all the way from immorality through the misuse of our tongue to anger, blasphemy, malice, filthy language out of the mouth. And then there is the 11 positives when we count uh, putting on the characteristics of Christ, letting the priests of Christ rule in our hearts, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it concludes on a great crescendo, a great crescendo in verse 17 of being thankful. In fact, gratitude is mentioned twice in verse 16 and 17. And it's striking to me as we think of this section as a whole that while it delves into some of the deepest troubling issues, thorny problems in the lives and hearts of people, and areas where the human personality can even be distorted by seeking one's identity 
in something other than Christ. And yet, as we read this passage, we come to verse 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And in that crescendo of gratitude to God, giving thanks to the Father for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus, it gives all of us a way to see why we need to live on this mountain peak vista of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. So let us read in Colossians chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 10. And notice when you get to verse 10 that there is an accent in verse 10 on the creative miracle of God that it was expressed originally in creation, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we as growing Christians experience the joy of knowing the Creator. So before we read the passage, let me ask a question. Why, why is it so vital that you and I find our identity in Christ alone? Well, first and foremost, because of that word created in verse 10, Almighty God created us for an eternal purpose that through the saving, redemptive conquest of our Savior gives us a place of security where we need no other human support for our identity. Our identity is found in Christ. So here we read verses 1 through 10, accepting, accepting, I pray today, that all of us would accept, my identity is in Christ alone. Read with me Colossians 3, verses 1 to 10. Let's stand together again for the reading of God's word with these Bibles together to share in this part of the unison of reading. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now just before we're seated, let's just notice there's a link in verse 9 and 10 with the conquest of Christ that's so vital. In the prior chapter, we saw that the Bible says in his resurrection glory that Christ put off the power 
he spoiled principalities and powers. It means he made an open show of conquering all of that which derives its power from rebellion against God. He destroyed principalities and powers, made an open show of them by the cross, and by doing that, on the cross where he gave that sacrifice, our sins, our errors, our failures, our abnormalities, all of the twistedness of the human sinful life was nailed to that cross. And in the resurrection, Christ gave us new life. Now, chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, notice that that new life means you and I have a new identity. That new identity is characterized as the new man, the new person, the new you. The new you is Christ's gift to you so that you can always say every day, I belong to Jesus. Now, I'd like you to turn around before you put that Bible down and turn to two people and tell them the new you is beautiful. Would you do that? Turn around and tell them the new you is beautiful. The new you is beautiful. And and as you do that, maybe it's a timely reminder for all of us that our lives are being indwelt by his conquering life. Our lives are being indwelt by the life of Christ. So the text is compressing in the first four verses a profound fact about what Jesus accomplished when he rose from the dead. When we are told that something has changed, this radical new redemptive reality through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ places you and me. Yes, in July of 2022, it places you and me on new ground. It puts us in a new family. It puts us in a new relationship, a new identity. Now, it's very striking that the Scripture gives us the very cure for the identity crisis that is now epidemic in our culture and getting worse. For the further the culture in this contemporary climate moves toward individuals seeking validation by demanding that other people identify them in a certain way. Identify me like, like I want to be identified or you are guilty of a microaggression against me. This is the new ethic of our culture. And it's not just, as I said, it's not just a fad, it's not just a craze, that would be enough, but it is being enforced by corporate and educational establishments and governmental entities so that you must, at risk of losing your job or at risk of being ostracized from polite society, you must look in the eyes of a female and tell her she's a, per a man. You must look in the eyes of a man and tell him he's a female. You must agree with this 
astonishing, preposterous distortion of reality, or you are the enemy. So the battle lines are being drawn. We're in a cultural war. Now, that's not what this text is primarily about, but it strikes me that if we look at the identity we have in Christ, this is the cure for these deeply entrenched desires that humans get wrapped up in to find their identity in something that makes them tower over others in superiority. Now, in light of that, it's quite interesting. If you go down to verse 11 and 12 to just notice something, that when you're risen with Christ, this means that you have been put in a different relationship with everybody around you, and yet it does not eliminate the valid distinctions between human beings. The Bible tells us that the beauty of God's plan for all of our lives is that Christ in his crucifixion and resurrection revealed the infinite value of every single individual soul. So that in Colossians 3, verse 10 and 11, we find this beautiful fact about this new man, this new identity that we are partaking of. And I want you to see it in that 10th verse again before we then go back to the top and flow through this text. Because it says, the new man. Now again, think of it, the new you. Can you say the new me? (laughs) In Christ. Now, now the, 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 the thing to notice is, the new you doesn't eliminate all the distinctives about you. See, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I've told new believers this many times. That doesn't mean that anything outward about you changes. That means the real you, the person God in Christ, is now calling his child. You are uniquely you in Christ. Yes, there's individuality within Christ. But Christ in his resurrection has made all of us equally blessed with a new identity. And our identity is the fact that Christ our Redeemer is Lord over his eternal kingdom. And in that kingdom, every single individual soul from the tiniest human being in the womb of an expectant mom... To the, to the farthest reaches of the earth and the oldest ages and in all human conditions, Almighty God sees every single human being with infinite value. In Colossians 3.10, he says then that you have put on this new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Another way to put this would be that when you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you've repented of your sin and you've said, Lord, I ask you to come into my life, I ask you to cleanse my sin, I I receive from you the gift of salvation, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life, and I enter by faith and I receive that from you. Colossians 3.10 then promises that there is an ongoing, renewing work of the grace of God in your life And that ongoing renewing work is nothing less than the image 
the identity, the shaping of the real you that God has designed for his ultimate glory and your best. This is a joyous cure for the crazy distorting of identity that we're seeing in our culture today. What identity do I need to be significant? I need nothing more than Christ, the living one, the living Savior. And this is why the text begins, and let's read it again just to to think of what it tells us. If you then are risen with Christ, read it aloud with me, seek the things that are above, not on things on the earth. It's notable that the Apostle Paul is addressing the triumph of Jesus Christ as a practical daily reality in your life by saying that when Christ the Lord ascended to the right hand of Almighty God, we know from Hebrews 1-2 that he purged our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15-25 that he must reign there until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is actively reigning, the reigning king and the reigning high priest. So this pictures for us the fact that every day of your life, you have a choice that places you on a vista with a perspective that can eliminate the heartbreaking human comparisons that cause people to try to fit other human beings into little boxes and qualify them by their skin color or by their background or by their identity that they have either chosen or the identity that they were born with. In other words, the triumphant identity we have in Christ means every day We have a living Savior reigning at the right hand of Almighty God. And Hebrews 7.22 adds to this a wonderful fact that he ever lives to make intercession for us. The active, daily, living, intercessory ministry of our great high priest means that there's not one split second, my friend, that you cannot bring the burden of your heart to your crucified, risen Savior and know that those nail-scarred hands that demonstrated the ultimate compassion of Almighty God for every individual on the face of the planet applies to you. And as a child of God, you can come to that throne of grace and you can receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And every time you do so, every time you set your affection on things above, not depending on things on the earth to give you satisfaction. Now, I know some people might read a verse like that and they think, oh, that means... That sounds like being of uh, so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. But actually the problem we have today is that the human experience for many Christians is so riveted to planet earth, so riveted to human opinion, so entangled in a web of trying to find significance in what other people think about us. Or in the current points of popularity in the culture. What makes you in? What makes you out? Would you take a moment and contrast Colossians 3 verse 1 with Philippians chapter 3 verse 19 and 20 because it is really crucial that we understand 
that Paul is talking about something practical here. This is not pie-in-the-sky sort of wishful thinking. This is not like, oh, just uh, be in a dreamy state of thinking about heaven. No, this is a practical, powerful, redemptive reality. Set your affection on Christ. Set your affection on the supremacy of the eternal risen King who loves you. Philippians 3.19 is a great contrast. It's almost the exact inversion of this, the exact polar opposite of this. Philippians 3.19 tells us that what's happening today and what is so tempting in our culture, I should start at verse 18. I apologize. Go to verse 18. Many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Wow. The same kind of idolatry he says in Colossians 3.6 about covetousness. There are many forms of idolatry, and here we see the word God, little g, speaking of an idol. They're making an idol out of their appetites. Their appetites have become their idol. And they bow down and worship their idol, in essence. Their God is their belly, middle of Philippians 3.19, then continuing. And whose glory is in their shame, now catch this phrase, who set their mind on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, now put that together, put Philippians 3.19 right juxtapose it right next to Colossians 3.1 and think about it. What's he saying? There are really only two possible paths that you and I can choose in a practical way in our daily lives. And it doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you may know. It doesn't matter how many experiences with God you've had. There is a practical choice, and it is a stark difference. The choice of Philippians 3.19, will I be one like Paul is speaking of there, whose mind is set on earthly things. Or, Colossians 3.1, will I be one who says, seek those things that are above. Now, in that seeking of those things that are above, then we see that it is the supremacy of the person of Christ that towers over the entire epistle to the Colossians. And when we saw some of the unique things Paul was addressing in terms of the heresies that that church was confronted with, we know that two great themes stand out in the snapshots of Colossians. This is, above all, how we can understand why this letter needed to be written. Those are the supremacy of Christ, that he is the head over all of creation, that by him all things were created, and that in his resurrection glory, Christ is present tense reigning as the supreme eternal ruler over this universe. So the supremacy of Christ is the first of two great themes that walk, that, that walk us through how we live our lives on a daily basis. The second of those two themes is the sufficiency of Christ, not only to save us from our sins, but as we're seeing in chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, the sufficiency of Christ to bring to all believers that renewing of his life, his conquering life within you. So then when you pair up Colossians 3, 2 
with that 10th verse that we looked at, the new man having its image renewed day by day. And you get to that 16th verse and you says, where he says, let the word of the living Christ dwell in you richly. Then you, you can put all that together to see that God has a cure for today's identity crisis. And the cure for the crisis is so simple, so powerful, so accessible to each of us that he gives it in these simple words of verse 3. He says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that we, we are recipients. Do you see it in your Bible? Look at Colossians 3, verse 3, and notice that it says something so profound here, that you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Think of it. Looking back to the day of the cross and the resurrection on that third day, the Bible is saying that what he did in his physical body and the glorification of God in the resurrection has eternal consequences for every single person who accepts Christ as Lord. Now, why would that be? How could it be that we could say, when Christ died and I accepted him, in a sense, in a manner of speaking, I died in him. How could that be? Well, very quickly, think of it like this. We saw two weeks ago that the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God, always has been God, existed eternally with the Father, all things were created by him, and that at the point of incarnation when the angel came to Mary, mother of Jesus, and announced to Mary that that Holy One who will be born of you shall be called the Son of God. In that, in that awesome miracle, God entered into humanity and the eternal God, the eternal creator, became the God-man. Well, the God-embryo first, right? And then the God-baby, and then the God-toddler, and then the God-child, and the God-man. But the point of Scripture is that his deity has, is, is never, not only is it not diminished in any way by humanity, but in fact... That in the eternal plan of God, this was his design all along. And Paul was addressing the false view of the Gnostics who said that there's some distant God way, way, way out there, but, but the eternal can never be touched by the material. And so there had to be all these different angelic beings or these demiurges, one writer called them, so that in, intermediaries, so that finally, if you really want to know the meaning of life and find that spark of the divine in you, you need to become very contemplative and very mystical about your relationship with the unseen and the unknown. And there were all these theories about how people could get in touch with their inner spark of the divine. Well, there are many different versions of that in our culture today. The controversy over people distorting sexuality is related to that Gnostic heresy. Because it is, it is the lie that people are looking for a significance that gives them some supreme and very special knowing that can't be discerned through the natural observa observation of life. Christ, the Bible says, is the deity. Christ alone is the source of our meaning. Read with me the text directly from chapter 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, think of it like this now, lives in bodily form. 
Do you see that the message of the gospel in the early church, the message of the gospel to communities like Colossae, was vital for their time, but just as relevant today. For what the Bible is telling us is the eternal God came in bodily form. Jesus entered humanity. The Creator entered our world. And in bodily form, He lived a sinless life. He taught and spoke as no man ever ever spoke. He performed miracles, signs, and wonders demonstrating the glory of the kingdom. And yet His ultimate achievement was what He said was His mission that he would lay down his life for the sheep. And in the resurrection power, notice it says, the second part of that text, read that aloud with me from the screen, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Now we saw two weeks ago that there's a practical uh, effect of all this. The practical effect is that when human beings in their religious pride or in their spiritual speculations or in their various superstitions, when human beings try to come up with their own system of virtue, they end up making lots of rules and regulations, and those rules and regulations look very impressive to the untrained eye. And we saw in the text of chapter 2, there were three categories of these these, um, man-made rules. They are... uh, They were uh, dealing with um, Jewish uh, religious practices, they were dealing with ascetic practices, and they were dealing with mysticism. And we summarize the takeaway of chapter 2 in three takeaways about how to break loose of that tyranny. And those are first, don't let anyone worry you about somehow improving on your virtue. (laughs) Don't let anybody worry you with man-made rules. Secondly, Don't let anyone cheat you out of your joy. (laughs) And third, avoid being dogmatized by others. The the Greek word literally means don't let people come grab you and dogmatize you. Make you the servant of rules and regulations. Now, why is that true? That's right before the text we're reading now. Well, he says if you're risen with Christ, in Christ alone, you find your identity. You do not need man-made rules and regulations because the triumphant conquest of Christ has obliterated all of these lesser distinctions. (laughs) So, in chapter 3, we see the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus means that His conquest is now yours. I know to hear me say that today, it sounds astounding. What do you mean, Pastor? Do you mean that I'm also a conqueror? Well, I didn't say it. God said it here and in Romans 3, 8, 37, when he said, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Why would that be? Because a new identity has been placed in you through the resurrection of Christ the Lord, and it automatically means you need not man's approval. You need not to be in some special identity group. You need not to identify with your racial group or with your favored class to gain significance. In fact, the reason the early progress of great movement of God in Christianity was that it eliminated those class distinctions. It became clear 
Doesn't, ma- doesn't mean it doesn't matter where you came from. Look, I was born in Oklahoma. I'll always be an Okie in my DNA. All right? Uh, but, but Oklahoma has nothing to do with Joe Reedy. It has zero to do with me. And you could say the same thing. Now, think about it like this. I want to give you a quick example. Now, I'm not going to take much time, but I want you to think about this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Think of the writer of this epistle. Paul himself had many, many reasons to be absolutely proud and absolutely arrogant about his accomplishments. He had distinguished himself with an identity as a, he described it in Philippians 3, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul, as a young man named Saul of Tarsus, Saul aspired to be the model Jewish scholar and scribe. He, he had set his mind on a goal, and that was he wanted to perfect this business of being a leader of the Jewish communities. He sat under the feet of one of the great, all-time historically great Jewish teachers named Gamaliel, and he describes his striving for the righteousness understood by the Jewish system. Now, that Jewish system was rooted in ancient commands from God, to be sure, but they had developed it into their own network and ecosystem of man-made rules and regulations such that literally, to be approved and found significant, you had quite a mountain to climb. And Paul was rapidly ascending the heights of great success. But then... He met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. And when Jesus appeared to Paul, the Saul, he fell off of his horse. He fell on his face. He was blinded. And he heard the Lord himself say, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he sent him to this humble dwelling on a street called Straight. And he sent a young a disciple by the name of an Ananias, a follower of Jesus, a student of Scripture, somebody who just loved the Lord who got a surprise visit in the middle of the night when he was told, I want you to go and lay your hands on and pray for the man who has been out to murder all of you. It would be like 15 years ago, somebody saying, I'm sending you to to the home of Osama bin Laden, and I want you to lay hands on him and pray for him. (laughs) And so Ananias needed needed some reassurance, and the Lord gave it to him, and then Ananias found Saul, he obeyed what the Lord said, and I think it's very striking in Acts chapter 9 that the very first word that Ananias spoke to Saul was not adversary or antagonist or attacker. The first words from the lips of Ananias were brother Saul. Because instantly in the resurrection of Christ, The new life of Christ in Paul, a new man had emerged, and his new identity linked him with the most unlikely connection, Ananias, just a humble believer. You see, when we're told, set your mind on things above, we're being given something that shows us that all of us have this relationship. We have this uh, connection with all other believers in Christ. So that when you see it and you think about this, you realize that in the text, in your Bible, in verse 4, 
we read that God has done something for us that places us in a new identity, and it's called hiding your life in Christ. Now, I love this imagery because here we have something. It seems a little obscure on the surface, but think about it like this. That what God is saying is, when you come to Christ, He, the designer, has made all the unique things about you. Just as every human being has a different thumbprint, a different fingerprint, and the DNA code is unique, it's a fascinating thing. To think of that we live in a time of scientific discoveries, let's say in the last 70 years, and since the development of genetic science, that we now understand, we now understand in scientific terms, what, could only, what was spoken by God in revealed scripture over 2,000 years ago. And that is what he said to Jeremiah over 2,800 uh, years ago when he said, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. That is God Almighty has designed individuality. Individuality is a beautiful thing to God. But, when it comes to the eternal dimension, what every individual cherished by God, loved by God, infinitely valuable to God, what every individual needs is not an identity anchored in this planet, not an identity anchored in the culture, not an identity anchored in popularity, not an identity anchored in what somebody else thinks about me, but an identity anchored in Christ alone. And so, he says in verse 4, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When I was reading this in, in the Greek text, it struck, it hit me so strongly. The with and the in. You are with Christ. And together, you're in God. The verb brings it out. That there is a togetherness between you and Christ. That means that just as much as Christ at the right hand of God, the Father is in a place of eternal, eternal glory. God sees you. And I thought it's a good way to contrast this before we close today, to think of what a beautiful contrast this is to the way it was in the earlier phases of God's dealing with man, when God was preparing for the law to come into the world and for righteousness to be spelled out in those awesome and, and impeccable Ten Commandments, God brought Moses to a place in Exodus 33 where, where the glory, the splendor that he's speaking of here in Colossians, that the splendor of God was so overwhelming and so awesome <laughs> that, that Moses' courage had been rising for a while to, to dare to ask God something that had not yet uttered crossed his lips. It happens in Exodus 33, verse 14, when he says, Lord, I just have one other request. And this is after the Ten Commandments, and this is after the horrific crisis where they made the golden calf, and then Moses interceded for the sins of the people, and then God did a mighty work in the camp to bring the promise of future redemption. And now Moses is back in Sinai, and he says, Oh, God! Just one request, show me your glory. But of course, in the glory of his presence, 
our humanity would disintegrate like crispy critters. We would be we would be incinerated in the immediate contact with the glory of God. So God says, Moses, no one can see my face. But Moses, I'm going to place you in a cleft of the rock. In those great giant rock formations there out in the Sinai, God takes Moses into this special cleft. And he hides Moses from the, the, the gale force winds that come as the, as the movement of Almighty God comes across and sweeps across Mount Sinai. And God places his hand on Moses. And the glory sweeps by. And he hears the Lord saying, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of goodness and faithfulness and mercy and loving kindness. And Moses then heard God say, Now, Moses, I will go with you, and my presence will give you rest. Now, that magnificent scene is awesome to us, and yet that was just one man, and that one man could not behold the glory, and that one man had to be shielded in a protective place in the cleft of the rock. Friends, what Colossians What Colossians 3, 4 gives each of you is something so much more profound, and that is that Christ himself is our rock, so that you can say, Christ is my life. Do you see that fourth verse? When Christ, who is our life, (laughs) shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. In other words, What Christ did in the resurrection so far surpasses the glory that Moses experienced. It's absolutely incomparable. And a a wrap-up way to take this home with us is to think of, very quickly, of just three aspects of this wonderful redemptive truth. The first aspect is that in Christ, we saw it earlier, we're alive in Christ. Remember, when you put your trust in Christ, our Savior, the Bible says... That Christ comes into our lives. And Romans 8.10 tells us that the Spirit of Christ quickens us. That if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He will quicken, He'll make alive the new person that you are. Now you might say, Pastor, I've been feeling a little bit tired lately. I'm looking for... I'm looking for some energy. Well, let me tell you, there is energy in the grace of God. The living presence of Jesus is a source of great energy. But above that is the knowledge that you can say, I died with him because he took my sins. I raised with him because I'm alive. Now, the second part is that Christ lives in you. So not only am I alive in Christ... Another great truth is that Christ lives in me. <laughs> and, and Colossians 1.28 says, uh, 1.27 says, this is the hope of glory. This is the very glory that, that Moses had to be protected from in the cleft of the rock. God has said in Christ, it's dwelling inside of you. It's so incomparably good that he has to, it's good to use Old Testament examples to contrast it because we miss how awesome it is to be able to say, His life is in me. 
And then the third part of that truth is, not only am I alive in Christ, not only is Christ alive in me, but now, in a practical daily experience in my life, I can say, Jesus is my life. The cure to the identity crisis that sweeps across America today is quite simply finding the truth that Jesus is our life. Oh, and when Christ is our life, we see that whether we're Jew, Gentile, black, white, from a barbarian background, he says later, Scythian, these obscure tribal groups, whether you're from the farthest reaches of Africa or the, or, or the Far East or South America or North America, whether your parents were living in a, in, in a, in a um, lean-to on the side of a mountain or whether you were raised in a million-dollar palace. None of those distinctions matter in the eyes of Christ. That in Christ you can say, He is my life. And it enables you to love, embrace, encourage, receive, walk alongside brothers and sisters in Christ from all different backgrounds, all different experiences, because the fact of his resurrection unites us in kingdom glory. I invite you to pray. Now, can we pray for a moment? about this identity question, briefly, but to the point. All of us can stand on the edge of a dangerous, slippery slope, and that is, sure, we find some meaning in certain things we identify with. On a human level, again, nothing necessarily wrong with that. But when we begin to find our essential significance in something less than the risen Christ our King, not only do we miss the best God has for us, but we really lose out on our mission in life because our mission in life is to make his glory known. And in a unique way, God has designed in your life individually expressions that reflect the beauty of a walk with Christ every day. And so in this moment together in prayer, I want to ask you to join with me to give thanks to God for an identity in the image of Christ that is real. And we're going to do it this, simply this way. I want to just ask you to say it with me aloud. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that by faith, through your risen glory, I can put off the old identity. I can put on the new identity, clothing myself with Christ my King. All because of your grace and your conquest on the cross. I love you, Lord. Shout out your praises to God. Shout out your praises. Give him thanks today. Thank Jesus that in death, burial, and resurrection, in his ascended place at the right hand of God, you have a place of secure identity, and it will set you free. Amen.